know about you, but summer can be kind of a weird time. It's great to kind of have a change of routine, not the normal stuff, but at the same time, it can really get us off our game in a lot of ways. And uh, one thing that we may have a tendency to do is just to be a little more lazy spiritually and maybe uh, just, you know, veg out a little bit more on media, TV, uh, Facebook, and those things. And, you know, I was thinking as we were singing there that oftentimes we have to kind of each week kind of undo a lot of the damage we've done as far as just maybe nothing necessarily, you know, in-your-face sin type stuff, but just just an absence of God in our life throughout the week. And then we come in on Sunday, and it takes us three, four songs before we finally, like, oh, yeah, this is what it's about. This is, this is about Jesus. It's not about all the other stuff that I filled my life up with during the week. And I wanted to just uh, to remind you to be diligent during the week. Uh, one thing we're doing this summer is every other week, and it's not this Wednesday, but every other week we're having uh, something called Eye to Eye. We've done it. This is our third year. And we have some of the young guys um, leading this, and Keenan will be up in a week from Wednesday uh, leading at the Bean at 6.30 to 7.30, just one hour there. And so come in, get a coffee. Uh, we're in, around tables, a lot of discussion. It's really good stuff. And so I hope that maybe you'll put that into your schedule, onto your schedule in a, a week from Wednesday. Also, uh, you know, just can't help but notice our Life Prep U class is a little sparse. Uh, Tendence is down in for that. I'd encourage you to get up maybe an hour early, get in, and be a part of, of that discussion. I know that Daniel and Brennan and others put a lot of work into preparing for that, and sometimes you hate for that to go to just a few ears, and uh, obviously God has his people there for a reason who he has, but uh, I encourage you to be a part of that as well. Uh, we're back in Mark chapter 6, uh, kind of a long chapter, and uh, we've been working our way through this book. Uh, great, great passage this morning, very familiar to many people. We're going to be in verse 30 through 44. Let me just read that for us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundred and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the historical record we have 
of the incredible life that you lived on this earth. We thank you for the, the witnesses, those who recorded the story for us, God. We thank you for the supernatural power of this book that not only reveals to us facts and truth, but it, it shows us our spiritual need and it points us to a Savior. And Father God, as we look at this passage today, may we be reminded of our desperation, our need for you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story that's titled The Feeding of the 5,000 there in your Bible, it's a story that's very popular, it's captivating, especially for children, they love to hear the story when they're little, maybe you remember the first time you heard this story, I sure do, and just, I've told before how I literally tried to pray and see if I could pull my bread apart and make it go for a, a, you know, a bunch of people in my family, and it didn't work so well. But, I mean, it's a captivating story. It's a great story. It's, a, it's an incredible story for adults, too. And I just wanted to, to, as we get into this passage of Scripture, I wanted to give us a visual of, because it's so easy to lose sight of really what we're dealing with here. We got, we got five loaves, and so they were just uh, simple little loaves that they would have carried around in a, uh, probably a wicker little basket with them, and then there were, they found two fish. Five loaves and two fish, and so uh, this, get this out here, and so I'm sure it wasn't quite this large, but it was probably a fresh catch from the Sea of Galilee there, and they had this small little lunch that, they were, that Jesus took and was able to do an incredible miracle with, and as I said in my prayer, it might be easy to hear the story and to think, well, this is allegorical, this is something, you know, that there's a, a bigger message here for us, there's not literally, Jesus didn't really literally do this. Well, I want you to stick with me as we go through this story and uh, to hear the truth of the story and the narrative of the story and see that this story is, is kind of unique because the truth is, besides the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So this is significant. This is an important miracle that Jesus performed because all the writers of the Gospel recorded this message. And so five loaves, two fish, an incredible miracle. And so as we look at this passage Let's think about the smelly fish and this loaf of bread that's, that's there. And, and it says 5,000 men. One thing that's interesting is that that's just the men that Jesus um, gave reference to the number there. And how did he know that number? Because they set him down in these organized groups, and so the disciples could easily number the groups and know exactly how many people were there. But most commentators believe there was probably 12,000, 15,000 people if you include the women and children. So this is an incredible, incredible miracle. And verse 42 says, and they all ate and were satisfied. So it wasn't like they had a little smidgen of food here. They had more than enough. And then 12 baskets that were full after they were finished. 12 baskets after they were finished. And so this, this story is critical in the life of Christ in his miracles, but maybe for a reason that's maybe not obvious upon just reading or, or hearing it throughout your lives. A little bit of background. Last week, uh, Pastor Roy talked about how the disciples had went out on mission. Jesus had set them out. He had been preparing them. He had been teaching them and training them. And that's the way that mentoring goes. That's the way discipleship goes. You, uh, let me show you and teach you how to do it. Now I want you, I'm going to watch you do it. Now I'm going to send you out to do it. And so Jesus had been taught, taught, teaching them and training them for ministry. And now he sends them out and he says, now you go, you put it into practice so they went out, they've done this incredible job. Um, in verse 30 it says that they returned to Jesus and told him all that had been done and taught. They were, they were elated, they were so excited that, to tell Jesus all the things that had happened. Back in 12 and 13 we saw exactly 
the kind of things that happened on their ministry when they went out into the towns and villages. Verse 12 and 13. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and they healed them. So you're talking about authenticating this message. They were doing this incredible stuff that Jesus was doing. Now they were doing it. Jesus was passing this along. And so we can only imagine this excitement as they came back to debrief with Jesus to tell Jesus all that had happened. And so Jesus tells them, he says, look, you, you, you've been killing it. You've done this great job. You've been serving. Let's give you a little break here. Look at verse 30. Uh, he says, come away uh, by yourselves to this desolate place, and, and I'm going to give you some rest. Uh, for many were coming and going, and they didn't have any, even time to eat. Things were so busy, so hectic, so much ministry. These crowds were constantly following them around that they didn't even have time to slow down and sit down and eat. And so they've been working hard. They, they needed time. They needed Sabbath. They needed rest. That's what Sabbath means. Sabbath means rest. Sabbath doesn't necessarily have to be on Saturday, which is literally what Sabbath means. New Testament tells us that Jesus no longer requires us to keep the Sabbath, but the principle of Sabbath is still there throughout Scripture. God modeled it in creation when he rested after his work. And so you can only go and go and go for so long before you just burn out. And whether it's connected to ministry or just life in general, you can only go so far before you just crash because your body is not made to go seven days a week. And so this principle of Sabbath is incredible because God knows what we need. He made our bodies. He knows the things. And the, the thing is, we look at this passage of Scripture, if you're really, as we sang in that song, and as Charles mentioned in his talk, if you're really seeing the lordship of Jesus in all areas of your life, then maybe you have a job that's demanding, but on top of that job, your most important job that you're about every day is spreading the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. That's your, that's your calling. So I don't care if you're an accountant. I don't care if you're in, in the medical field. I don't care what you do. Your ultimate job is not a nurse. Your ultimate job is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Your ultimate job isn't a plumber. Your ultimate job is I'm an ambassador for Christ for everyone I come in contact with. So imagine if we take Jesus' words seriously and we get up and we head to work, but our mindset is, yes, I want to do the best I can today for my employer. I want to show my, my employer that Christians live and act differently, but my most important job today is to represent him and live for him, speak for him, tell of his fame, and make him known. So imagine the pressure and the stress and even though you find great joy in that, that comes with constantly having that mindset of ministry on top of your normal 8 to 5, 8 to 6, 8 to 8 job that you do every day. And that's our calling. So Sabbath is critically important. Critically important. When we're doing ministry, we must take Sabbath. And so we will exhaust burnout if we don't. And here's the thing. Why is ministry so challenging? Why is it so difficult to do ministry? Here's why. Because your life is messy, and my life is messy. Our lives are difficult. Relationships, marriage, parenting, all the pressures that come. And then we go to minister to those, maybe unbelievers. They don't have Jesus, as we've been singing, there with them, in them, giving them the joy and the strength and the perspective. And so they're trying to do life completely on their own. And you get involved in someone's life at a real ministry level, 
It's difficult. It's, it, it's tough. It's exhausting. It takes so much effort. And so we need rest in ministry. We need to take Sabbath. And so the greater the demands of ministry, the greater our need to find time alone with Jesus. The greater the demands of ministry, the greater our need to find time alone with Jesus. And to me, this is really what a lot of this passage points to today, is when he challenges the disciples, you feed them. He's teaching them something. He's showing them something. And there's a lot of levels and layers to this, this, and a lot of uh, pointing back to the Old Testament, but we can't miss this idea that, that ministry takes effort. We need rest, and we ultimately only find the strength for ministry when we're connected to the vine, connected to Jesus, because this world will drive us crazy, and the needs and demands will. I mean, I mean just real practically, let's, let's step back for a second before we move on past this. Let me show you how you can evaluate your life to see whether or not you're going to Jesus for the strength of ministry. Are you praying for those in your life that you come in contact with? Because that is the tangible illustration to yourself of whether you're depending upon God for the strength you need to do what God's called you to do. Are you praying for that person who you know you need to care for and love and witness to? That person that you're seeing every day in the office that irritates you, are you praying for them so you do keep that ministry mindset? Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your kids? Honestly, answer that question in your mind. Answer that question in your mind. How much are you praying? Because if you're not in prayer, then you're not drawing your strength from Jesus. You're, you're not. You're not drawing your strength from Jesus, plain and simple. And so, are you connected to Christ? Are you praying for his strength to do ministry? Are you asking God to give you the power to do those things? Because if they're in your wheelhouse, if, they, if, they're, if they're just something that you just are so good at and natural at, then you're not depending on Jesus and nothing spiritual and good is going to happen in that relationship or in that situation because you're just depending upon you and we have to depend upon Christ. So verse 32, he takes them away to a place by themselves so they can get rest from ministry, but they get no relief from the crowd. Look at verse 33. People are just uh, going crazy after Jesus and after his ministry. They're, they're in great need. And, and it says in verse 33, now they saw them going and recognized them. They knew who they were, and they ran on foot from all the towns and, and to get ahead, and they got ahead of them, and they were waiting. And so as the boat came in, there were the crowds. And it's easy to imagine possibly the despair the disciples felt at this point because they were looking forward to this, I'm sure, just to be able to sit down with Jesus. And to, they were exhausted. And, and we can probably see in a minute just a little bit of frustration maybe even coming out. But look how Jesus responded. There was no frustration. There was no anger. There was no depression. There was no, can we get a break here? He saw this as an opportunity. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Compassion. Think about that word for a second. Compassion. I think compassion, the, the image that I get in my mind here is what is it like to be in that other person's skin that I care about their life and their joy? I care about their joy, not just my joy, 
but I care about their joy. And so I'm able to empathize and, and put myself into their situation. And that's so hard to do, isn't it? So hard to do. I constantly hear the church. I get calls from people asking for help or assistance, and you're trying to weed out and determine, and we have uh, places in the community you can go for various resources and things. And there was one gentleman who called me recently, and his, 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 uh, his water bill, he, he had no water at his house, and he's blind. And uh, he, he, he was really persistent. He, he just wouldn't stop calling. And I told him, I said, here's what we'll do, because he owed a lot. I said, here's what we'll do. We'll match up to a certain amount. So if, if you can get $100 from another church, I'll give you $100. And, and, and I went on vacation last week and got back, and he was calling. He called Roy. He, he, he was really working hard, and he called me, and he was excited. He said, I, I raised $130. And I said, well, I'll keep my promise. We'll pay 100 on it, call the city, put the money onto the bill. He still owes some money, but they turned his water back on for him at least until Wednesday. And, you know, your heart goes out because it's easy just to dismiss and think, well, just another person holding a sign. And on that way, so many times, I mean, you get hit up all the time for needs. And you want the Holy Spirit to help you discern situations and know what the right thing to do so you're not enabling somebody who's just using this for, uh, you know, for destructive means or whatever. But there's times when you just, you just know that it's right. You know that something else is happening here. And that was that situation because I just felt the empathy. I thought, what if, you know, I'm blind and then I have no water to take a bath. I have no ability to even, you know, drink water from my faucet. How terrible would that be? But what happens is we need to slow down. And as Jesus did, slow down and, and have compassion on those around us. Help try to understand their plight. Try to understand the situation they're in so that we can not only help meet their physical need, but show them Jesus. And that's what Jesus did. Look at verse 34. Before he ever touched any physical need, what did he do? He began to teach them many things. We talked about this a lot. We can do a lot of good things for people, but if we don't give them the truth, if we don't give them the word, if we don't give them, to give them Jesus, ultimately, what are we done to help them? And so whenever we minister or reach out and encourage somebody, we always want to share Christ, to, to, to point them to Jesus in some way. And that's what Jesus was all about, about teaching. And I talked a couple weeks ago about how important teaching was in the ministry of Jesus. There's just something about, Mitch said something about song and setting a song. There's just something special about the word as well, more so than song, that you, you hear God's word and his word doesn't return void, that, that he works in our hearts, he softens our heart through his spoken word and through his written word. And so we want to fall under the authority of his word in all areas. So we can, like Charles this morning, you're sitting there and you're saying, Jesus, what do you, what do you want me to say? And Charles didn't say this, but uh, he, this is true. I know Charles. He, he's not implying at all that Jesus said, okay, Charles, and audibly. And he's like, oh, God, there you are. Okay, tell me what, what I need to do. That wasn't the way it happens. God doesn't audibly speak to us. And I think it's important to clarify that maybe for some of you who aren't regular church members because you hear stuff like that. We say stuff like that. Uh, you know, God spoke and you're like, huh? God doesn't speak. I've never heard God speak before. God speaks right here through his word, through prayer. And we take the circumstances and the wisdom that he gives us and we look in the word and we take the word and we apply the word to everyday practical experiences of life. And so it's tough to hear from God if you don't know the word. If you don't know the word, you're not going to hear from God because he revealed it all to us right here in this book. 
And sure, he leads us and guides us practically through wisdom that he's given us through, through uh, other people and who are, are, are believers who help steer us in the right way and help us uh, discern the will of God. But the word of God is the light for our, our path. It helps us understand how to live our lives. And so Jesus taught them the word because the ultimate joy is found in not filling up our stomach. It's knowing God. It's glorifying God. And I just, you know, I, I see that meeting people's physical needs or loving on those around us is an opportunity to earn the right to be heard. Because if you don't care about somebody, but you want to give them the word, you know, want to give them Jesus, but you don't really care about them, they, people see right through that. People see right through that kind of behavior. People know if you're being real and authentic or not, or if you're just another number, another project for them. And so love gives us the right to be heard. And so we have this empathy. We have this love for people whose marriages are in trouble. Frustrating because we help somebody and, and, and we think they're on track and then they fall back into the same situation again. Or, you know, we got with that family and their, their kids are struggling and we're trying to encourage them. And just every time we see them, it's always about their problem, their need. And sometimes we feel worn down like, really? God, I don't have anything else to give. But that's what love and empathy allow us to do. It allows us to keep going and keep on, keep it on in those situations to love people and to give them truth. And so we earn the right to be heard. We earn the right to preach the gospel through our loving actions. And then verse, again in verse 34, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Think back real quick to the message last week, the passage before this, where, Jesus, uh, where, where Roy preached about um, King Herod and how that he killed John the Baptist. And if you were here, you remember that, hopefully. And uh, King Herod, he was this, this awful guy. He was, he was this terrible king. In fact, you know, I know Jesus doesn't advocate calling people names, but Jesus called uh, Herod at one point a fox. He's a fox. And what do you mean by that? He was this, this small, weak, but crafty and treacherous individual. He was this wicked king who was all about himself. And he was a man who had weak character. And he used it, his power to control others and for his own selfish end. And we saw what he did to John the Baptist in that situation last week. But he, he was, all, all, all Herod was, he wasn't even, if you look back in history, he wasn't even, he didn't even get the title of king. He wasn't even allowed to be called a king. He was really a puppet of Rome. He, and, and, and this area where he ruled was just an area of the Roman Empire, and he served as a, as a client state for the Roman Empire. And so basically he was, a, he was a nobody in the big scope of things. The only reason you know about him is because we see him in the word. But he, he was a bad guy and was a terrible leader. And, and the Jewish people were under this, uh, this oppression from the Roman Empire and specifically from Herod. And they were looking for good leadership. They were looking for leadership. They were looking for a shepherd. And that's why the people were flocking to Jesus because they weren't getting any help from Herod at all. He was such a, a bad person. And John chapter 6, verse 15 tells us that this miracle of feeding the 5,000 it had such an impact on the crowd that they literally, in, in verse 15 of John 6, it says they tried to force Jesus and make him king. They like literally wanted to take him, hoist him up, carry him into Jerusalem and say, this is our king. Because they were in such desperate leader, need for leadership. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus began to teach them. And he's, he's the good shepherd. He loved, he had compassion on them. He fed them the word 
and his compassion moved him to meet their needs. Verse 35, but then it grew late, and there were physical needs as well. And the disciples came to him and said, look, this is a des- desolate place. They state the obvious, right? And the hour is late, the sun's going down. Send them away to go in the surrounding countrysides and villages to buy themselves something to eat. I love that, right? I mean, the disciples, all of a sudden, they've arrived at the place where they can tell Jesus what to do, right? Uh, Jesus, all right, pause for a second on your teaching there. We've got a little problem here. We need you to send the crowds away. We've got, we got an issue here. These people are going to get hungry, and we have no ability to, uh, to do anything for them. So I need you, Jesus, just to send them away, get, get rid of them. That was our original tent anyway, right? Jesus was to a little R&R here. We need you to just get rid of the crowds. But I love what Jesus says. You may have heard the story many, many times, but never called this. But he answered them, you, you give them something to eat. All right? Disciples, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And the word you is, in the, in the Greek text, is very emphatic. I mean, it's very, you give them something to eat. And what do you think they did? They, they panicked. They didn't know what to do. Look what they said. Uh, uh, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And we learn from John's account of this miracle that it was Philip who was figuring up the math real quick and trying to determine what it would cost to feed everybody. And 200 denarii, that was a lot of money. That was about, during that time, one denarii was about a normal laborer's wages for the day. This was like eight months of pay, eight months of money to pay to feed these people, and it probably still would not have been enough. But rather than taking suggestions from these, his disciples, getting rid of the people, Jesus had a whole different idea, a whole different approach. Look what he does. He does the impossible. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they, and when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he began to break, break the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the people. And then he divided the two fish among them all. And they, were, they ate and were satisfied. Pretty amazing, right? Jesus bypasses all human effort and does the impossible. Jesus controls the physical universe and he exercises his control for his purposes. We know that the laws of the universe operate in a consistent and predictable manner. We know that if we drop this, gravity says it's going to fall to the ground, right? The world works in a predictable manner. God created it that way. But when we hear this miracle, and we see this miracle, we don't try to explain this away like, was it Thomas Jefferson who took the Bible and cut out all the parts that he thought were unbelievable and was left with just the teaching of Jesus because he couldn't accept the fact that, that miracles could happen? You see, the critical point that he misses and the critical point that many people who are skeptical of these things and may call themselves Christian is the fact that Jesus wasn't limited by creation because Jesus was the creator. He was the creator God, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made by Him. And so Jesus is the creator. He upholds the universe. He holds it together, Scripture says, by the Word of His power. The Word of His power. He holds it together. We looked at Colossians back a few months back and when we went through this book. Back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this was written. It says, For by Him, Jesus is talking about Jesus, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. And the Bible obviously isn't written to, to show scientific truth, but the, the Bible does reveal to us truth again and again and again, and it's stuff that we can bank our lives upon. And the fact that Jesus is above natural law and physical law, and that he holds it all together, makes sense. Complete sense, because he's creator God. And if he says, hey, hold on a second, we're going to do something that isn't natural or normal, and the laws of science can't explain this whatsoever, and he does a miracle, that is when the creator God steps in and says, I'm going to do something that I can do and only I can do because I'm the one that's above time and space. I'm above the law, laws of the universe. And that's what he did. So don't try to write this off and think, oh, you know, this, you know, this, this got to be some explanation or this is silly. Look, all four gospel writers, like I said, this was written while people who were still there were still alive on earth. Think how silly that would be to, for the, the gospel writers to pen something that they know people could say, no, I was there. That didn't happen. That's silliness. That's stupid. You know, making that up. But you got all four gospel writers writing the same story. Details provided. Pretty amazing. Jesus created the universe. He sustains it. He directs it. Moment by moment on a continual basis is what the Word teaches us. This helps us understand how Jesus could do such a thing. So Jesus, who created the physical laws, stands outside of them and over them. And he could change or revoke any of them for his purposes. And that's what he did. So I know it's hard to try to get our mind around this right here. Being able to go and feed 12, 15, 20,000 people. It's, I mean, you just can't fathom. You can't even imagine what that would look like. And I don't want to speculate what that would look like because it was truly a miracle. But it was there, authenticated by many people, recorded for our purposes, and also to teach the disciples a really, really great lesson. This, this, this miracle wasn't just a display of power. I think on a practical basis, it was a, a display of Jesus' compassion, his compassion for people. And the series, we, we called it Just Like Jesus. We want to be just like Jesus. We have to be people who are compassionate. People who are compassionate. And we live in a day and age where many of the people that we look up to, the people we admire, or the people that are in charge of leading us are not very compassionate people. And we live in a, in a day and age where, just like when I was in high school, it's kind of that same mindset, who can cut down the other person better, or who can better the other person. And our whole structure of the way we live, because it's based upon human nature, fallen nature, is how can I push you down to get above you? How can I win? Because you're going to have to lose. Somebody's going to lose if I'm going to win. And, and, and that's subtle oftentimes in some ways. In other ways, it's a lot more obvious. Compassion is not something that comes easy or natural for the Christian. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have God's Word who, who teaches us. But you know what? What comes natural to us is hateful, vindictive, 
thinking and language. It does, right? It does. If we're honest. I mean, you can be the biggest social liberal in here, but you have to admit that most of the time you're vindictive, you're hateful, you don't want to be asked another time, give me something or give me a ride or provide this for me. We don't like that. We, we avoid it because it's hard to be compassionate. And it's difficult to ascertain what we should do in those situations. But our natural tendency is self-preservation. Look out for, as Charles said, me, myself, and I. I'm the agenda. Let me just cruise through today as easy as possible without very little tension and problems. And oftentimes, the very things that oftentimes motivate us to do good things is our guilt. Because we feel better about ourselves. Oh, I gave that guy five bucks. I feel so much better about myself. And true compassion rarely ever motivates us because true compassion is only something that can be given to us by God. And it only is provided when we stay connected to the vine, connected to Jesus, who was the ultimate, ultimate display of compassion. So Jesus in this situation, he didn't stop and ask, okay, who's deserving out there of a lunch, a free lunch? He didn't start to evaluate their decision-making process into getting to this situation. He just has compassion. He just has love. The disciples, not so much. Not so much. Send them away. Probably practical, logical. Not criticizing them too much here, but, but they just said, let's get, get rid of them, Jesus. Send them away. There wasn't a lot of compassion implied there, and I think that's why Jesus responded, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat, because what's going to be the reaction? The action of Philip, the reaction of the disciples, we don't have the means. We don't have the ability. We don't have the resources to give these people something to eat. Jesus, how in the world are we going to do that? And we're going to see next week in the passage, there is something else going on here, okay? There's something else that Jesus is going to allude to down in, I think, verse 52. And I won't give that away for next week. You can read ahead if you want. But the disciples were being taught a lesson. They were, Jesus wanted to show them something. And here's what it is. It's humility. It's dependence upon him. It's understanding that nothing can happen in life, spiritually speaking, without Jesus. Without Jesus' intervention. Without Jesus stepping into the equation and saying, look, it doesn't make sense to you, but I don't make sense to you because I'm above your sense. I'm above your knowledge, your logic. I'm going to provide for you something that you can't do for yourself. And so we need humility in our lives. Humility because to understand that if we're going to accomplish anything spiritually in our mission in this world, we have to be dependent upon Christ. We have to come to the, our end of our rope and say, I got nothing. Uh, you know, I, I'm down here barely hanging on, if hanging on at all. I got nothing to provide here. And Jesus says, that's where I want you. Because now you have to depend and lean and trust me. And I go back to this all the time because it makes perfect sense to me. And I hope that you will grasp this. That when you, if you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, like Alex displayed this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ at some point in your life, what did you do? You came to the point where you said, I need a Savior. And look, to, to say I need a Savior, okay, remove your Southern um, religious theology for a second. 
saved, I'm saved, okay? We are saved, but let's let that word really sink in. Saved, rescued. You were destined for hell and for destruction for eternity. And you came to the place where you said, I'm condemned, I'm lost, eternally lost, without a Savior. What did you do? You said, Jesus, I need more than me. I, I need something so much greater than me. I can't do it, earn it, measure up. That's the gospel. And so you saw your need for Jesus Christ. And you flung yourself at his mercy. You cried out for his grace. Because you were literally, spiritually at the end of your rope. But I'm afraid what we do is we say, I got saved, I got my salvation. Check, check, good, good to go there. So now I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to do my stuff, do my thing, and got Jesus, got eternal life, got my ticket, good to go. And there's no more dependence upon Jesus. And the disciples, he was teaching them a lesson, who he is, his greatness. And, and it's going to say later in the next passage, their hearts were hard, and that doesn't mean they were like, uh, Jesus, stay away. We, we don't want any part of you. It, it means they were just confused. They were, uh, did they understand the extent of who Jesus was? And I'm afraid oftentimes we don't either. Because if we did, and we truly saw that this is my ministry, this is what I've been saved for, to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a witness for Christ, to share Christ with all those I come in contact with, if I really truly grasp that and own that, then daily I'm saying, Jesus, if they see me, they're going to see a very intolerant, angry, disappointed, upset, depressed, fill in the blank with your whatever you are at right now, person. And that's not going to draw anybody to the glories of the holy, perfect God that's so far above us. That's, no, that's going to point anybody to Jesus. It's going to point people to say, another hypocrite, another fake Christian. But what happens when we're truly humbled by the gospel? Seriously. What happens when we, the same spirit and attitude that brought us to our knees at salvation is the same spirit and attitude that we wake up every day dependent upon? That humility that says, I can do nothing apart from you today. Nothing. Sure, you could do something, but you can do nothing that has eternal value, as Charles said, laying up your treasures in heaven. Something that really, really matters after your 70, 80, 90 years of this life are over. You just teach them humility. John 6.63, John's account of this passage. After this miracle had happened, he has this dialogue that goes on with, with people who claim to be his disciples as well as his real disciples. And he tells them in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, it's of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Spirit and life. The words I've given to you, this is life. This is spirit. Trust the word to do its work. Depend upon Jesus in humble, humble submission every single day. The disciples couldn't provide the literal food. They didn't have the resources. They had to receive it first from Jesus. The same thing is true spiritually. We have no spiritual food to offer. We only have Jesus to offer. And we get out of the way, 
We say, let me display you, Jesus. Let me just be a conduit. As, as you flow into me, then I flow out to those around me. And also in John, Jesus said this was a sign. He read one last verse and we're finished. John 6, 26. After this miracle, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, just fed the 5,000, not because you saw signs here, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The only reason you're flocking to me is because I did something for you. You didn't see the sign. What was the sign? He was pointing back to the time of Israel in the wilderness. He was pointing back to the manna. We don't have time to go into all that today. But he was saying, there's one here for the Jewish person. They needed to hear this. This This was the most pivotal thing they could hear is, I'm greater than Moses, is what Jesus was saying. I am greater than Moses. I am, I've got something to offer that Moses could not do, that Moses could not give you. And so he says, you missed that, because all you cared about was what you could get from me. And so, back to what stops you from being dependent upon Jesus every day. All right, stay with me here. This is, this is, this is the key point. What stops you from being dependent upon Jesus every day? Because you realize that salvation, you couldn't get to heaven without Jesus. But you don't really think that you can get through, you really think you can get through your day without Jesus. And so it's almost like you've given me the tangible stuff, you've given me what I wanted, which was my security, but I don't really care about the spiritual stuff. I don't care about the life and the spirit. I just wanted my stomach full, so to speak, right? I want Jesus to give me all the stuff that I need in life, meet all my wants and my, and my dreams, and, and just be there, my genie in the bottle that gives me what I want. And that's the people. The people, the crowd, they wanted their stomachs full, but they didn't care about who Jesus was. The sign that pointed, and the disciples didn't either. We'll see next week. The disciples did not either. So compassion comes only through being connected to the vine. It only comes through humility, through the dependence upon Jesus. And your ministry, your passion for ministry is displayed by your dependence upon Jesus. And I say practically, look at your prayer life. Practically, look at your prayer life. Because don't tell me you have a ministry if you're not praying. Don't tell me. You can't. Because you're doing it on your own. You're not doing it with Jesus' power. Pretty amazing miracle. Pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Teaching the disciples a lesson. Showing the people who he was. The lesson's still true for us today. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the water. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, when Jesus taught us to pray, he he, he taught us the first thing that we should ask for after we bring glory to you, the first thing we should ask is your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I pray that our body, this church, this community, grace, we call grace, may our prayers, the first thing that we speak and ask in our prayer after we're finished with the the, the segment of our prayer, we're bringing glory to you and we're admiring you and, and we're esteeming you and we're hallowing your name. May it be the first thing that we pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Your, wor- your will be done in our office. Your will be done in our neighborhood. Your will be done in our relationships. In every area of life, may your kingdom come. And your will be done there. God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth. We thank you for um, the fact that you are great and you're incredible and you hold all things together by the word of your power. And God, you've given us your word. You've given us your truth. Help us to be in it and to learn from you. Sit at your feet. Be a conduit for you in this world that needs you so desperately. In Jesus' name.